Blood in the stool is a really important red flag. Unusual abdominal pain, bloating or cramping. Now, typically that might be more due to irritable bowel syndrome, but please don't make a diagnosis of irritable bowel or anything else until you've excluded more serious conditions such as bowel cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. There's a thing, Proctalgia fugax, which is really intense anal pain. So if you get anal or rectal pain, that might be it. A lump, a lump in the anus or the rectum or the tummy, of course, needs to be checked. Welcome to the Eat, Live and Move podcast by Miyagi, a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations, expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. Hello, I'm Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert. And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, a cardiologist and preventative health expert. And I've got to say, I am wearing glasses today because Gina told me I look smarter wearing them, so I've got them on. I agree. They're fabulous. Together with our 60 plus years of collective experience, we're on a mission to help you improve your health and transform your habits so you can eat, live and move better one episode at a time without the fluff or the fads. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be dedicating the conversation to bowel cancer because it's an important topic that affects so many Australians. Bowel cancer claims the lives of more than 100 Australians each and every week. So we're going to be talking a little bit about bowel cancer, what it is, what causes it, the red flag symptoms that you should be looking out for, and what you can do to reduce your risk. But before we begin, please make sure to hit subscribe. All right, Ross, so can you please just start off by explaining simply to the listeners at home what bowel cancer actually is? Yeah, well, bowel cancer is also known as colorectal cancer. It's a cancer that can affect any part of the colon, which is the large bowel the rectum and even the anus. Um, so it may be referred to as colon cancer, rectal cancer, really depends on where the, the cancer is located. And the colon and rectum are parts, as I said, of the large intestine. So this type of cancer develops from the inner lining of the bowel and is usually preceded in almost all cases by growths called polyps, which may become invasive cancers if undetected. So these polyps are little outgrowths in the inner lining of the colon and there are different types of polyps. So the worst ones are what we call adenovitis polyps. There are a thing called sessile polyps as well. Uh, and they can they can start anywhere in the colon. And in fact, sometimes they can even be in the stomach. There's a lot of genetic conditions that can lead to these things, but they can occur in anybody. So it, it can start in the in the small bowel, but it's much more rare in the small bowel. And interesting, interestingly, when you have a gastroscopy, that looks at the stomach and the upper bit of the small bowel. A colonoscopy really looks at the the colon and a little bit of the lower small bowel, so you can miss quite a, quite a few meters of the um, of the small bowel when you're doing those two tests. So there's some lo- alarming statistics here: fifteen thousand six hundred and ten Australians are told to have bowel cancer each year, but it claims the lives of, of about five thousand three hundred fifty four Australians every year. And in fact, the risk for bowel cancer is about six per hundred people per lifetime. That's so huge. It's an, yeah, it's it is quite. It's the second deadliest form of cancer after, of course, lung cancer. People strangely are still smoking, um, and the most deadliest form for those people aged between 25 to forty four. Because really, really quite disturbingly, the rates of bowel cancer have markedly increased in younger people, doubled over the last 
20 to 30 years, which you could probably talk about a bit later on. That's so, so young. I, th- I think if yeah. I met someone who was 25 or even 30 or even 40 yeah. with bowel cancer, I'd be shocked. That's so young. Yeah, well, look, there's, a, there's some lifestyle reasons, but there's also, for example, this relatively common genetic condition called Lynch syndrome. And that often is the thing that predisposes people to getting early bowel cancer. And I speak with some authority about this because, because I am the chairman of, of uh, the Gut Foundation. So, um, so it's something, even though I'm a cardiologist, I have a strong interest in, in bowel disease. Chuck of um, all trades. Well, Australia has one of the highest rates of bowel cancer in the world. Um, estimated, well, it says here one in 15 people, but it's actually one in six, get, uh, sorry, six per hundred, which is about one in 15. 55% male, 46% female. Young onset bowel cancer is on the rise, as I said before, 10% of cases diagnosed uh, in the young, 32 can, cases can a week. Can you tell me, what is Lynch syndrome? Lynch syndrome is, is a genetic abnormality that markedly increases your risk for getting polyps. So people with Lynch syndrome uh, have this mutation in the way the, the bowel wall works, and so they're just making more polyps. And these people can have multiple polyps in their bowel in, in their 20s and 30s. I saw a guy with this uh, in his 30s the other day. So they often have to have a colonoscopy every year because the thing about colonoscopies is that they're not only diagnostic, but they're therapeutic because you can have the, col- the polyp removed at the um, – at the colonoscopy. Okay, and how can someone test if they've got lymph syndrome? Lynch. Well, it is a genetic. Lynch. Yeah, Lynch. Uh, it is a genetic disease, so you can have that. You can have the gene tested for, um, and that's really how. But you, you do that. You'd only do it, for example, if you had a very strong family history of bowel cancer. We, we get onto those. We talk about. This. Yeah, got you. Okay, now Ross, the stats that you said before blew my mind. Alarming, especially in that the younger onset that you were mentioning. What do you think some of the signs or the symptoms or red flags that we should be looking out for? So you mentioned, obviously, family history. What else would you consider as a red flag? Well, a personal red flag would be if, if you've had a particularly uh, normal bowel habit as far as you're concerned, you're having your bowels once or twice a day, not particularly hard, not particularly soft, but then it changes. So this is, this is always the big deal when people's uh, normal habits start to change. I don't care whether it's changing to become more firm or more loose. Something's gone. That's when you need to uh, to get that. So, so any change in bowel habit, diarrhea, constipation, or the feeling that when you've opened your bowels, you haven't opened them properly, you haven't emptied them completely. A change in the appearance or the consistency of the bowel movement, such as thinner stools, and here's the big one, blood in the motions. Now, it doesn't have to be bright red blood. Your, your stools can change color to be black. So for, for people out there who are say, just say a young woman is having very heavy periods and has to take iron pills, that's going to make the stools go black. They're not bleeding. They're just getting the, the coloration of the stools from the iron. But with, with, if someone who isn't taking iron pills and not, ha- hasn't changed their diet dramatically gets very dark stools, that could be an indication they're bleeding from their gastrointestinal tract. And can I make the point that a, a little bit of blood on the toilet paper is no great deal, but if you, if you have blood in your stools, that's almost a medical emergency. It's not something you should say, I'll make a, a point with the doctor in a week or two's time. Possibly you should now. get off to a hospital. Yeah. If you have black stools, get off to a hospital right now. And I remember a rather disturbing case I had when I was a, um, a resident many, many years ago. A person came in with black stools. That was the only thing they said, oh, my, my stools have gone black, doctor. So the first thing you always do then is put an IV line in 
because they can just collapse straight away. So I'm there putting the drip in, and as I put the drip in the man's arm, then he collapsed. So thankfully I had the drip in because we could get fluid and blood into him straight away because he otherwise would have died. So blood in the still is a really important, um, important red flag. Unusual abdominal pain, bloating or cramping. Now, typically that might be more due to irritable bowel syndrome, but please don't make a diagnosis of irritable bowel or anything else until you've excluded more serious conditions such as bowel cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. There's a thing, proctalgia fugax, which is really intense anal pain. So if you get anal or rectal pain, that might be it. A lump, a lump in the anus or the rectum or the tummy, of course, needs to be checked. Now, typically a lump in the anus or around the anus is a hemorrhoid. And a gastroenterologist once said there are two types of people on the planet, people with hemorrhoids and those who, who are going to get them. So everyone's probably going to get a hemorrhoid at some stage in their life. But Gosh, still, it sounds so tragic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because we're living against our physiology. We were designed to wander around a jungle for 30, 40 years, waking up on the cave floor in the morning, eating natural foods. We don't do that anymore. Now, another one is people, and this is a really important red flag, not just for bowel cancer, but for all diseases. If people have unexplained weight loss, so if people go into a program where they're trying to lose weight and they lose weight, fantastic, the program's working. But if, you, if you're not trying to lose weight and nothing's changed in your life and you're starting to lose weight, and, and I'm talking the kilos are dropping off you or you're feeling unbelievably tired, that's an enormous red flag that needs a thorough workup. No one just say, oh, isn't it great I'm losing weight? Oh, isn't it great I've lost my appetite? You've got to find out why. And just unexplained fatigue is another one. So that, that's something we need to be concerned about or if you become anemic, which you could be bleeding without knowing it. Um, and there, also, if, you, if your um, urine change changes color, that's another thing as well. So that needs to be checked out. But that, that could indicate a fistula into the, which is a communication between the bowel into the bladder and also change in the color of urine may indicate something going on in the liver as well. Okay. Now, Ross... That's so much information. I, when you were listing all these things, it made me think of, you know, when you were diagnosing, say, for example, a mental health issue, there's je there tends to be a cluster of things that we need to look for. You can't just say, you know, someone's doing this one thing, therefore they might have this mental health illness. There's a cluster. Is it the same for bowel cancer? Do we look for a cluster of these things or could it just be one of them? And it's like, oh, look, this is a risk. So the problem, problem with this is that it could be any of those things. One thing by itself, it could be nothing. And this mm -hmm. is why we talk about cancer surveillance rather than just waiting for the symptoms to occur. Okay, that totally makes sense. With surveillance, you're meaning that testing. So, all right, say a person does have some of these symptoms. What should they do? Okay, well, if anyone's getting any of these symptoms at all, um, or they're just diligent, they get to a certain age, they've got a family history, go and see your GP, and get him to run some him or her to run some tests on you, uh, and things like blood tests, seeing what your blood count's doing, your iron levels, stool samples are important. Physical examinations, put a rectal examination to see if there's any evidence of of anal or or rectal carcinoma. But a referral to a gastroenterologist who will almost always do a colonoscopy, and if there's any hint of upper gastrointestinal sy symptoms, at the same time you do a gastroscopy. Got you. Okay, now. You've mentioned, like, we've talked about what bowel cancer is. We've talked about how serious of a problem it is in Australia. Now you've covered some of those red flags to look out for, so thank you. I want to know now, what are some of the, 
I guess, what are some of the things that we can do to reduce our risk? You mentioned that, you know, we're all going to get hemorrhoids, which was just such a morbid thought, but <laughs> let's just joke, say right? that. <laughs> and one of the things you mentioned is that we're living against our physiologies. That we're living in this world where we're not just eating supernatural food, we're not exercising as much, we're not getting as much sunshine, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what can we do, I guess, to reduce our chances of getting bowel cancer? It's a bit like my specialty, heart disease, that there are risk factors, risk factors for heart disease, risk factors for bowel cancer, risk factors for lung cancer. All, all these things have risk factors. And I, I say often one of the best cancer prevention techniques is to use the organ for what it was designed for. So, for example, the best example there is you had a couple of things in your lungs called uh, in your chest called your lungs. They were designed for a weird thing called breathing, not to put a white stick in your mouth and suck the smoke in. So with bowel cancer, the risk factors can be categorized into non-modifiable and modifiable factors. So things obviously you, you can do nothing about and things you can do something about. So non-modifiable risk factors are characteristics or traits that individuals can't change, obviously, whilst modifiable risk factors are influenced by behavior and lifestyle. And can be altered. So let's look at the non-modifiable risk factors first. So Number the one things is, we can't do anything yeah, about. They just is age. what it is. So it's okay for you young'uns, but the risk of bowel cancer increases with age. In most cases, most cases, not all, and we've mentioned before that they are increasing in younger people. But most cases are still diagnosed. Ninety percent of cases are diagnosed in people over the age of fifty, with the highest incidence being over the age of seventy. Now, I'm, this is very personal for me because my beautiful daddy died of, at, of bowel cancer at age 73. So it's I, I've had four colonoscopies in my lifestyle, in my life, and we'll have another one in the next year or two. So family history of bowel cancer or certain genetic conditions such as Lynch syndrome, familial adenomatous polyps as well, oh, that's what that is, can increase the risk. So individuals with a first-degree relative, a parent, sibling, or child diagnosed with bowel cancer are at a higher risk, as I've just mentioned I am. But again, the younger your relative is diagnosed, the higher your risk. And according to Bowel Cancer Australia, 30% of diagnosed cases are due to family history from one of these inherited syndromes, Lynch syndrome being the most common. My dad didn't have Lynch syndrome. I don't have that in the family, but he just didn't get his bowel checked when he should have. So, Ross, had, had your dad got bowel cancer earlier in his life, does that mean that you would have been at a higher risk oh, yeah. of getting bowel cancer? A absolutely. And as I said, I've had four colonoscopies, never had a polyp. Yeah, okay. And can I ask you what that experience was like? You can say no if you don't want to talk about it. Oh, no, delighted to. No, no, not the, the colonoscopy. The... That's not what I want to know about. No, no, oh, no. okay, no. okay. All right. <laughs> so, no, no, I was just going to. Yeah, go on. What, what, what experience wanna... was like? I'm, I'm curious about when your dad was diagnosed. Was it a long and painful journey or was it quite quick? No, it was. Well, he was diagnosed about three years before, had bowel surgery, um, but it was a, a, I think it was a grade two, maybe grade three cancer. So it had gone through the bowel wall. Um, and dad had a, a reasonable existence for the for about two and a half years. And then we. this was in the days before we had immunotherapies or anything else. So he did all he really had was the surgery. And then he got very ill one Friday, and I made sure he was very comfortable for a few days, and he died on the Monday. Oh, wow. And I sat there with my mother. It was a beautiful death. If death. Deaths can be beautiful. I sat there with my mother, holding a hand, just taking her through Dad's death. Oh, and gosh, he was, I have he, goosebumps. 
I was I'm, 42 and it was just, his funeral was horrible because he was just a beautiful, beautiful human being, my daddy. Yeah, I can imagine. And when you, I guess when someone has a diagnosis, especially of cancer, it, it sounds so like obviously fatal. It sounds like it's the end of the world. And to live on three years after that is wonderful. But it was there always this point of every day with dad is a gift. Is it sort of like a touch and go all the time feeling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is. And he was just such a lovely, giving, generous man. And he was just beautiful. So I, I miss, miss him every day. He's a lovely I man. I bet you do. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't imagine losing a parent. <laughs> All right, let's move on then let's before move on. we start yeah, okay. crying so, on our yeah. microphones. Ross, can you tell us, so are there any more sort of non-modifiable risk factors other than the ones you've spoken about? Oh, yeah, there's a huge one. There's a, a thing called inflammatory bowel disease and that they're typically two major ones, which is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. They're two slightly different different causes. Uh, just can we hang on a second? Our lovely wife's bringing me a coffee. Thank you, Bella. Oh my gosh, can you keep that in the recording? That's brilliant. Thanks, wife. <laughs> okay. So, I love this. <laughs> well, it's just us. She's, she loves me. It's so um, good. So so getting on to that, ulcerative colitis is a much more common cause of colonic cancer than is Crohn's disease. So, so if you've got ulcerative colitis, you must have regular surveillance, some people even need a total colectomy with ulcerative colitis to make sure they don't get a cancer. There's something like 17 to 20 times higher risk of cancer with ulcerative colitis, not so much with Crohn's disease or the less common form of inflammatory bowel disease, which is known as microscopic colitis. So um, that's that one. Then there's all the, the other inherited genetic mutations apart from Lynch syndrome, and there's a list as long as your arm, which I won't go through, and it's not really relevant to this. And also certain... Certain races, certain ethnicities can get this as well. So one thing I wouldn't want to be is a, is a European Jew um, because these poor people get have a risk for a lot of conditions. They have a much higher rate of the Angelina Jolie gene, the BRCA1 gene, BRCA2 gene, much higher risk of bowel cancer, familial hypercholesterolemia. Their genetics is not great. Why um, do you think that is? Oh, it's just that just... The, the, the way certain races are and the way the mutations have gone within that particular race. So, for example, the Dutch, uh, especially the Afrikaans who have gone to South Africa, um, they, they have a, a one in seven risk for familial hypercholesterolemia, whereas in the population it's about one in 250 in the standard population. Wow. Have you ever come across the work of Dr. Gabor Mate? No, but if you hum a few first few bars, I should be able to pick it up. So. <laughs> Dr. Gabo Mate, he is a Jew and he's also a doctor and he does a lot of work in the space of trauma and how, you know, the, the idea is that I guess the body keeps the score and that there could be these generational traumas that happen and because we know that trauma doesn't just affect our mind, it affects all parts of our body, right? And there's sort of this generational thing that happens and I can't help but think or wonder if Jews in particular may have these higher risk factors for chronic diseases because of potentially what they've experienced, but also their perception and how that was managed. And I don't know, I'm throwing it out there. I reckon Gabor Mate would agree. I, and I don't disagree, but also they've got lousy genes, these poor people. I've got a lot they of people do. in my practice who are Ashkenazi Jews with these dreadful genetic problems. So, oh, but then there's, let's, let's get positive now. 
Let's yeah, get all right. To the more, uh, Tell the me about some of the things we can change. Yeah, because well, those are said, all things we can't change. The best cancer prevention treatment is to use the organ for what it was designed for. We, Our bodies were not designed to put this processed package masquerading as food down our throats. So things like people who have a low fiber intake, much higher rates of bowel cancer. So diets that are, that are low in fiber and fruit and vegetables in, in, uh, contribute to a marked increase in risk. So, so look, what do we say all the time? You, you know more about this than I do, but 50% of our plate should, should be salads, vegetables, um, and you start small if, if you can and add just an extra piece of fruit every day. But I just find it really disturbing that less than 10% of the population have the Walker prescribed dose of fruits and vegetables every day. Two or three pieces of fruit, three to five servings of vegetables, and those who do have the lowest rates of heart disease and cancer, including bowel cancer, in the community, less than 10% of people. It's just really disturbing. And it's just because, you know, I guess processed foods, they are so much more convenient. They are. It's much easier for me to grab a packet of crackers or some chips than it is to make a fruit salad, for example. But I could also grab a piece of fruit, I guess. I'm just trying to give crackers and chips a seat at the table. Mm, but you're right. Give a seat at the table, but yeah, I think they're <laughs> completely unnecessary. But you keep going yeah. with the rest there. <laughs> I think as well, it's they're tasty. They're we can't deny that they're tasty. Um, yeah. What about red meats? I know that there's been research on and off in this space of red meat and the consumption of it or processed red meat. Okay. Well, I think that's um, complete nonsense. Uh, I think processed meats, yes. Lean red meats, no. Um, oh, and, and red meats that aren't char-grilled. So if you char-grill your steaks, you get a whole lot of things called nitrosamines, which are the poisons released by the char-grilled red meats. Yes, there's a link there. But if you don't char-grill your steaks, I don't think there's anything wrong with having one or two red meat meals a week. I, I think the evidence from the Pure study, I think the best uh, dietary epidemiologic study in the world, 220,000 people followed for nine years in 50 different countries, showed clearly those people would have, on average, 100 grams of red meat per day, three servings of high-fat dairy, that's actually oat, but uh, three servings of high-fat dairy per day had a 25% reduction in death and cardiovascular disease. And the studies for for processed meats, if you have a piece of bacon, ham, uh, devon, something like salami every day, a good piece of that every day, you increase your risk for bowel cancer about 17%. Oof, that's a lot. Well, it sounds like a lot, but let me give you the proper numbers, the, the absolute data. Six per 100 people per lifetime will get bowel cancer. If they have processed meats every day, it's seven per 100 people per lifetime. So the, so the 17% increase is not a huge jump up. But again, I don't think we should be doing this stuff. But if you have an occasional bacon and egg roll, who cares? It's not going to hurt you at all. So I think it's about common sense stuff. Now, the, the big one, and I say this all the time, the second best drug on the planet is exercise. So people who don't exercise, and tragically only 25% of people do the, uh, the Walker-suggested dose of exercise every day, which is, every week, which is three to five hours a week, lowest rates of heart disease, cancer, including bowel cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, diabetes, 50% reduction in depression, 50% reduction in osteoporosis. Do you know how many people are getting the recommended exercise dose yeah, per week? 25, 25%. 25%. 
Okay, so there's plenty of people that still struggle with moving regularly. 75%. <laughs> I love how you just I, pull these stats out of anywhere. Well, I mean, I'm just brilliant at maths. You know, 100 <laughs> minus 25 is 75. I get it, Ross. I get it. <laughs> All right, for the 75% of us who are struggling with moving more, I've got some hot tips for you. Firstly, start small. I think a lot of times when we think about exercising, we envisage going to the gym and getting sweaty and having to be around these like fit girls and boys. And we don't, we don't have to do it like that. Start really, really small. If that's just a walk around the block, if that's doing some, you know, I don't know, something at home, do that. Find an exercise buddy to help you stay accountable or go to a class that you've actually got to like book in for. I've started going to this reformer Pilates class. And if you cancel it within two hours of the session, you have to pay $10 for it. And that's a I bit of a just- stretch. Oh, sorry, I just, sorry. I can't, I, no, I can't get joke. myself to pay it's, it because it's I'm a like, Pilates it's, joke. I, wait, a stretch. Oh my well, God, I- Ross, you did it again. <laughs> How do I miss these jokes? Ross? Oh, let's see. Hey, listen, did I tell it's you, Jenna, so good. Do, do you, do you know when is the worst time to have a heart attack? As you know, I've heard you say this, but I'm still caught up on the stretch okay. that I can't bring it to memory. Can you tell me? The worst time to have a heart attack is when you're playing charades. Oh, that's right. Yes. That one I got. Yes, I got that one. <laughs> okay. And then some of the other things, especially like if you're on holidays or the weekends, get the family involved. Throw a frisbee around in the park or at the beach or even with your pet go for a bike ride, walk down to the shops rather than driving. Every little bit counts. Every little bit counts. Yep. And also one of the big issues is being overweight. So there's no doubt that there's a link between overweight obesity and all forms of, well, many forms of cancer, especially bowel cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, melanoma. These things are all linked to obesity, pancreatic cancer. So we've got to do everything we we can to reduce our waist circumference. That's the big deal. Yeah, and I often meet people who are trying to like lose weight on their own, and I think for the people that can and they're doing that, you know, effectively, awesome. But I do find there is so much conflicting information on the internet. So many different pieces of advice from start intermittent fasting to do this. I don't know what does Shane call it, the garbage soup diet. <laughs> Bin juice, that's what he calls it. It's disgusting. He's like, we don't do bin juice diets. And we don't because, well, I guess our theory and our motto and our, certainly our values that diets don't work. And we know this from research over and over again. It's not the diet that you did that didn't work and the next one will work. All diets don't well, work. I wrote a, a book about this 15, 20 years ago. I've just upgraded it. Diets yeah. don't work. I know, but your book also said not to snack, and I disagree fundamentally with that. Yeah, well, we can choose to differ. Don't <laughs> I look. love snack. I'll just peel that page out of the book and read the yeah, rest of it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It's okay. your book. It's your book's actually called Diets Don't Work. It's what it's called. Diets Don't Ooh, Work. I love it. My theory around diets don't work for various reasons, and my theory comes from the research, so I can't really claim it all for myself. But diets depend on willpower. And willpower is a fleeting resource. We don't have all that much of it. And one of the things that that depletes our willpower or our self-control is being hungry, is having a low blood sugar level. And so there's this feedback loop where your body's reducing its calories, it's losing self-control, but then it needs extra amounts of self-control to be on this diet and the loop doesn't work. Mm. Okay. 
But that What's some of your that... greatest points in the book, I, re- I guess, around why diets don't work? Oh, well, I, Can you I, give I, us a three-point summary? I, well, yeah. Firstly, diets don't work because you go on a diet like you go on a holiday. What happens when you go on a holiday? You come home. So, so people – and when people go on a diet for the first month or so, they lose water and muscle. They don't lose fat, which is what they want to lose. And the fat is ingrained. It's like an archaeologic dig. It takes months and months and months of chipping away, and then eventually the fat will start. And that's what you want to lose. You don't want to lose weight. You want to lose ingrained fat. And it takes months. That's why. That's the first reason diets don't work. The second reason, this is something I concentrate a fair bit on the beat of the book, we all have different body shapes. And so there are people who, especially if they're throwing a bit of insulin resistance, but the tall, skinny types, what I call the T-types in the book, uh, they really struggle to put on weight. But that, that's, as I said, tall and skinny, and if they do, they put on a little bit of fat around the belly. But if you're, a, if you're a C-type, which is the controller type, you're controlled by your pituitary, you put on weight everywhere. Then there's the, the A-types, so like a, a male A-type has got the pecs and the six-pack when they're younger, then they get the, the man boobs and the keg as they get older. And that's typical A-type. And the, the women, the G-type, are the Serena William type with the big backside. All the fat goes on the, the bum and the, the, the thighs, not as much on the belly. They have, tend to have bigger breasts. So, so I think you've got to find out what body type you are and eat more to your body type, which is what I talk about in the book as well. But anyhow, we digress. Let's get back we to do digress. another modifiable thing. Is something that I think should be banned, wiped off the face of the earth. Come the revolution, I'm running the show, this would happen, with cigarette smoking. Cigarette, cigarette smoke is just so bad for everybody. No one should be smoking and no one should be vaping. It's all Are you nonsense. really not a fan of smoking, are you, Ross? I mean, I know you're not. No, I'm, I'm not either. Oh, yeah. It's great for business. I should shut up because <laughs> I get to see a lot of people for a short period of time who smoke. <laughs> it's true. Do you know since big tobacco companies took over certain food uh, like products, those food products have gone gangbusters in the market and it's because – Tobacco companies are so good at making us addicted to things. So good at that sweet point. I'm not a fan of smoking. I have smoked very like a handful of cigarettes and only to spite my father, who used to be a smoker and is no longer, thank goodness. But he is struggling with emphysema now as a result. So I'm very glad that he has stopped smoking. Uh, well, if he kept smoking with the emphysema, he wouldn't be with us, I can tell you. No, this is true. If someone is struggling with smoking, Dr. Ross, what would you suggest for them? What's the first protocol? I, I actually think I'd prefer not to answer that now. I would prefer to have a whole podcast about smoking, ways to give up smoking, go into it more deeply, the, the evidence for vaping versus cigarettes, which is better. I think it'd be an interesting podcast. So why don't we do that? So, so please, if you listen to this, you're thinking about giving up smoking, give up, but we'll tell you in a podcast. But don't, al- you don't have to wait for the next episode. See your doctor in the no. meantime. Oh, absolutely. And then there's <laughs> alcohol consumption. Look, I, I think the definition of an alcoholic is someone who drinks more than their doctor. So, <laughs> Not many people then. Oh, well, there's not many people. No, no. But I say <laughs> to people, we, sh- we should limit our alcohol consumption to a couple of drinks most days of the week and have a couple of days off uh, because regular heavy alcohol consumption can be associated with a high risk for bowel cancer as one cancer. Yeah, and again, speak to your GP if it is something that you want to reduce and it's something that you're struggling with reducing that's alcohol in your life. Yeah. So, so look, um, research out of the US, which was only, only a couple of years old, shows that 34% of bowel cancer cases may be prevented by a healthy lifestyle 
and but it gets up to sixty one percent when you combine that with a full GI workup with a gastroenterologist such as a colonoscopy. So I think it's an important thing to do. So healthy lifestyle, uh, these factors, normal body weight, never smoked or ex-smoker more than five years, moderate to vigorous activity, as I said, uh, three to five hours a week, none to moderate alcohol intake, and, and also at least three of the six dietary recommendations by the World Cancer Research Fund, which which included keeping your red meat down for the stipulations that I said, certainly minimize the processed meats, get up that dietary fiber, so good for you. Uh, dairy products, good for you in terms of reducing bowel cancer, and it doesn't matter whether they're high fat or low fat, Gra- whole grains are good for you, and um, and that's about it. So re- And also rec- uh, and recreational. Seeds. Yeah, all those things, nuts and seeds are great. And, and also, physical activity is so good for you. Just by itself, reduces bowel cancer risk 16%. And like you said before, if you do have a family history, you need extra testing. So please do and have a chat with your GP. Okay. So let's. can we look now at the screening programs that are available in Australia? And as the chairman of the Gut Foundation, this is something I really push all the time. So... So according to Bowel Cancer Australia, 99% of bowel cancers can be successfully treated if picked up early. But unfortunately, uh, only 50% are detected early enough. So the National Bowel Cancer Screening Program provides free screening tests to eligible individuals aged between 50 to 74. Now, I've had a lot of 78-year-olds ring me up and say, why can't we get the test? And the reason reason being is that if you've made it to 78 without bowel cancer, you're probably not going to get it. So you don't really need to keep going with the test. So it, it comes every two years. And the tragedy is with this test, only about 40% of people who receive the test actually do the test. It takes five minutes. It's easy to do. So if, you, if the test arrives at your home, don't put it in a drawer. Take it up to the bathroom so that every time you walk in the bathroom, you say, there it is, I've got to do this. And it just five minutes of your time, just just do it. People just don't want to be scooping up their feces, do they? Oh, but so what? I mean, look. Oh, and I'm the, with you. I'm just saying, like, you know, it would attest for why so many people wipes are not their doing it. side every day. I mean, what's the big <laughs> deal here, for uh, goodness sake? Yeah, but they're not putting it in a cup. I mean, that's an entirely yeah, listen, different listen, exercise. I, I just want everyone listening to never have to go through what I had to go through burying my beautiful dad when I was 42 and he was 73. It is completely preventable. Please have the screening test. If you have any of those red flags, please get them checked out. Please speak to your doctor about it. It is so important. Oh, powerful message. Thank you, Ross. Thanks for sharing that. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, we're going to finish with our member question of the week, which has come from Carrie, who says, how long does it take to create a new habit? Oh, that must be for me. Yep. I suspect that one's for you. Uh, Carrie, great question. Most people will say that it takes 21 days or 28 days to create a new habit. Now, that is a myth. It's actually based on a study that was done in the 1960s from a facial reconstruction surgeon who was doing surgery on his patients, and he noticed that it took them about three weeks for them to get used to the appearance of their new face. So he was like, well, it must take three weeks to for neuroplasticity to take place. That means it's three weeks to change your habit or create a new habit. It's rubbish. It does not work for our everyday habits. So to Can answer I say, your question. He was probably yeah. off his face. 
<laughs> where where do you pull these out from? They're so good. I'm just visualizing you've got all these polyps inside your brain and you're pulling these jokes out from it. It's uh, brilliant. Uh, go on, keep going. Sorry. Go Hi, on, okay. <laughs> Ross, you make my day every time we chat. On average, it takes roughly 66 days to create a new habit. Now, the research shows that it can actually be anywhere from three weeks to up to a year to create a new habit. And the reason there's such a wide range, I know I wish I had a golden number for you, is because it depends how habitual you are as a person, how consistent you are with your new habit, how complex the habit is. If you're trying to change something that's really complex, it's going to take you a lot longer than trying to change something that's a bit more simple and also how much support you have around you. If you're not in a very supportive environment or with a supportive system around you, it's going to take a lot longer to develop your new habit. The key is consistency and intention. You need to really want it and you need to do it consistently and it can be as quick as three to four weeks if you really wanted it to be. But we will do a whole other episode on this one because as you can see I can talk about this all day long. That brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. Whatever platform you're listening to today, please hit subscribe so that you don't miss out when we drop a new episode. That's all from us. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for more conversations with me, Gina and my co-host Dr. Ross Walker. Bye. Bye.